the Burlap Podcast. My name is Chris Abel. I'm a co-host of Burlap. And today, Chris Folmsby is not with us, but we have a good reason. We have with us Reverend Sarah Heath, who is a friend of mine and a pastor uh, of a church restart in Costa Mesa, California. And Sarah, it's really good to have you on the podcast. So welcome Thanks. to Burlap. It's fun to be here. So Sarah and I just got done helping out at a conference this week at Church of the Resurrection in Leewood, Kansas. We did what we call our Leadership Institute. And so we flew Sarah out and she's still in town. And we just figured that we'd glean some of her wisdom uh, for a little bit here before she heads back to California. So Sarah, uh, first of all, like you've got a lot going on in life. Like you've got your church restart that's going on yep. that you've jumped into. You've just had a book come out. What's your story? Seeing your life through God's eyes. And I hear you're about to start a podcast. It's Tell true. us a little bit about what, like about you and what, what's going sure. on in your life. So I have been living in California for 12 years after seminary. Um, and I just, so just the last, almost when you started your new job, I started my new job about uh, a new appointment a year ago. Um, it was a older congregation. And by that, I mean the building's uh, almost 100 years old. And the folks that were there, there were 17 to 27 of the meeting. And they were all... I would say over the age of 70. Um, and so there was kind of a concern about sustainability and how they were going to keep going. So uh, I was brought in by the bishop to do a restart, which means that um, we kept the folks that are there and we worked on uh, creating a new community. However, what we didn't realize is that very first Sunday there would be 55 people there. And so I had to hit the ground running and figure out, well, my plan was to like strategically... Wait. When you say first Sunday, like like you're fir- literally like first. you started this appointment and you just kept services going and you just showed up and like more people were there. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And was paint a picture for us. Like there sure. was, was this like everybody who had any connection to the church came out or these new people? So a lot of them were. Um, so yeah, I think there were people that had a connection to the church, um, and then I think the other piece was. Uh, I wasn't moved too far from my former appointment. So I think some folks came from my former appointment just to say, hey, we love this person and we want to back them and support them. Because I think there was not an adversarial feeling, but definitely like what is happening to our church for these folks? Because some of them had voted to close. Um, they they didn't want to keep the church open. Mm-hmm. They felt like what they, they were done in ministry and they couldn't figure out how to minister to the people around them because the demographics had changed, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. And so they were kind of um, not adversarial, but a little concerned. And so then uh, also I do some podcasting. Um, I was not my own. That's new. But I had been on some podcasts. And so people were wondering uh, where this person was a pastor. It just was right around that time. And then there were folks from the community who knew me because I'd lived in that area for a while who um, were like, hey, we want to wherever you're going to be because I was finally going to be ministering close to where I had lived for a while. So that was that. So I thought that that was just sort of like, yay, big Sunday. You're welcome. It's going great. But we ended up having about 40 for the first couple of months. So that's a big jump from 17 to 40 for folks. And so we kind of had to figure out how to hit the ground running. I think the image that a lot of people give is that you'll have a year to sort of figure right. out. Yeah. I did not have a year. So even when I, so I did a church plant, but it was a multi-site plant. So I had the support of a larger church right. and they had kind of prepped yeah. the, you know, the groundwork for me. And so I arrived and, you know, took a team of 70 and launched a church somewhere. And like, it's a very different process, right? It cuts, it, it took, well, we still took four months to launch and a lot of church planners will spend an entire year. And if you're planting parachute style, 
Oh, yeah. You don't even, usually it takes years just to get to that point. So, yeah, I parachuted, um, um, but the ground came to me. <laughs> like, oh, you know? man. Like, I jumped That's out of the plane. That's a funny analogy. And I was actually, I know, well, I think you're the king of analogies, so I felt really good about that one. But the plane never, like, took off. Like, I jumped out of the plane, and we were still by the ground. So that's... <laughs> <laughs> your, like, parachute comes out. You're just covered in a blanket on the ground. That's basically what happened. Um, and so that's been that, and that's been a really interesting process because now we're intergenerational, and all six of the living generations are in our church. Okay. That... I think is the most one of the most intriguing things about what you're doing because yeah. so often I just hear so many bishops, so many pastors talk about um, that it's just easier to focus on the a younger generation. Just close a church down, like kick the people out, easier. use their resources. <laughs> There's this mentality that you know I could do church work if only it wasn't for these old people. And right. yet, there's kind of like a, a little, sometimes a flippant attitude from younger pastors. And yeah. not everybody, some some people listening to this are millennials, some people are older generations, but there's so few places that are focusing on trying to keep that intergenerational thing going. It's so, the hardest thing I've ever done because yeah. it, um, I have to be willing to take it on the chin sometimes. And by that, I mean, I'm willing to let people be grumpy and difficult with me if it means that they will be positive and reassuring to the folks coming into the doors. Um, and especially that was true for the first six months. Um, I didn't have staff, so it was just me. And I had um, like a accompanist who was paid, but it was like a guest accompanist. And they would come and just play the piano, and we had no song leader. So it was just a really, really uncomfortable, awkward family gathering for about six months. And I think you came and visited during that season, I think? Yeah, I was there. Oh, man. Yeah, I guess pretty close to the beginning. Yeah. I mean, I just, so I, I, I was just visiting California, decided to stop in. You were so cool. Just let me come to your church yeah, you know, of ahead of time. And I remember you were telling a story that you, you inherited this building with like the stained glass had been smashed. Mm-hmm. Like someone threw a rock through it. The power lines had been. Yeah. So my first Sunday there was, if you can imagine, um, they had had uh, consultants tell them to tear down all the buildings around the church because there wasn't enough parking. If we were going to grow, that we're going to need parking. Now the problem is if we're going to grow, we're going to need classroom space and that isn't present. So there's not even an office. There is one little office room, but it's like a closet. Yeah. And when I got there, it was definitely clear that that is where the counters were and pastor was not to be in that space. So there, imagine uh, like not feeling welcome. Like, no, we literally have no office space for you. You can keep all of your books in your Tupperware. Thank you very much. And so I moved to this church and I remember that first week, a friend of mine, he helped me move all my boxes and I had to move them into the bell tower of the church because I was the only space for it. And there's no power because someone had stolen all our copper wire and people thought it was an uh, empty building. So someone threw a brick through this Jesus oh. window. And so the people, instead of worshiping in the sanctuary because they thought it was too dark, because it's staying there's on no windows, electricity, right? There's no electricity. I literally had no power figuratively and literally. Um, so the people were worshiping in the lobby by a boarded up window in the like, like lobby of this beautiful church so they could see inside their church. Just imagine what that does for you psychologically. Yeah. So okay. My, yeah. So, no, sorry. Continue. So I was going to say, so my first Sunday I walked in and prayed and thought, what the heck have I done? Um, Cause when they asked me to do this appointment, I came up with, they, they asked a bunch of us, you know, come up with creative ideas. And like I had, my creative idea was like, I'm really, uh, you know, I know a lot of folks in the community. And when I talk to them, what they say is they need a church that, 
is uh, progressive in some of its ideologies, but still clings and holds to worship of Jesus. And so mm. they brought me in, and I uh, that first Sunday, I just thought, I love this community so much, but I don't know if I can do this. Uh, so I walked in, and I opened all the stained glass windows, because they actually open. Uh, there's no, there's no like air conditioning where we are, but there is this beautiful ocean breeze. And so I opened all the windows, which the light was incredible. And I moved the little stand-up pulpit they had had for several months to the front of the church. And we did church inside the sanctuary. So you're like, get in the sanctuary. Yeah, get inside, guys. It's time to, like, stop mourning. And it's time to, like, move on. Because most of them had been there when the Capitol campaign was for those outside buildings. And they were so proud of them. Oh, so then they got ripped down. And then when they got torn down. So so you had this community. So you adopted this or inherited this community that was, like, heartbroken. Oh, yeah. And they still don't trust me. Uh, they had an appointment that was there for only a year. Yeah. Uh, we had a bishop who was uh, very sure about where she sent people. And so she sent someone there for a year to do the tearing down of the buildings. But mm. no community growth happened. So for them, oh. they had been abandoned. And then, so I come in and they're like, there's still a sense of like, it's probably now over a year and they're just starting to maybe try to get to know me. What we call, this is horrible wording and we don't use it around them any, around the community anymore, but we called it for a while, the remnant, like the folks or the legacy. Yeah. I feel like every church uses, it's our legacy service. Right. Legacy. The problem is that really hurt them and was separating. Mm. And so we don't use that language anymore. We just say the church. Right. And we can't really say older members because we have some new members who are in their 90s. So You have new members? Really? Yeah. Okay. So, question. Yeah. How do you find that? So, you have all different generations coming all to this thing. All different generations. How do you find that this, the, these um, older people who were here 50 years ago when they built these buildings, saw them torn down, don't trust? In some ways, it reminds me a little bit of like an animal that's been mistreated and then given away or taken from owners mm-hmm. and then given to a new owner. And like the animal doesn't know if like it doesn't know about petting, it doesn't know about the food, it's like mm-hmm. distrustworthy, it doesn't like strangers. Like I have a friend who has a dog and doesn't like men because she was abused by a guy. Yeah. And so like I'm coming in and trying to be kind and just you have to be like just steady and kind. And eventually, mm-hmm. after a couple of hours, this dog came over and let me pet, it, pet her. Yeah, I think there's some of that. I think there's yeah. also some distrust because they feel as though I'm young. Even though, I mean, I'm young-ish, but I've been doing this rodeo for a while. Um, the way that I do things is different. Um, the way that will be comfortable for the new folks coming means that it, you, you cannot be a club anymore. Mm-hmm. So as an example, one of my staff, who's amazing, um, he was really disheartened one day because um, a very chippy comment had been made about how for hospitality, they have a little table. And um, when our uh, older folks who just didn't want to do it anymore, they would do like spreads, like we're talking uh, tablecloths and every week, even when they were worshiping in the lobby, tablecloths that were seasonal Everything was beautiful. They made enough food for everyone that was there from like, we're talking like chocolate dipped strawberries. That was the hospitality. Whoa. Okay. Scratch the record, income a bunch of millennial, younger, whatever, uh, boomers, Gen Xs, all coming in. And they're like, give me my coffee, which should be good coffee, and give me my donut. I don't need the spread, right? (laughs) But this woman put out this beautiful setting and she said, 
uh, to the staff member who had actually that week volunteered to do the hospitality. Like, this is how you do hospitality to him. You know, you give God's best and you welcome people this way. And he felt sad about it. And I said, here's the thing. They had gorgeous hospitality for each other. Mm. Like, who were they welcoming into this space? And they were loving and they wanted to welcome people, but they just didn't know how. And these people have tried all kinds of different ways that hasn't stuck. And so in a weird way, I feel like God has given us this weird blessing and that our numbers grew really quick so that our ability to say, Hey, we kind of know a little bit of what we're doing. Um, right. So there's, there's proof, right. But there's pain. I yeah. mean, I think we've had a couple leave and that's been really hard on me harder than I thought it would be. Cause I think I thought some of the victory was we had no, nobody leave in the first like eight months. Um, and now, and now we're starting to have that. So, yeah, yeah. so that's, that's that, that part of my life, um, my restart and my community and intergenerational stuff. Um, you asked about the book. Yeah. Yes. I wrote a book, which, um, just so you know, I wrote a book well. Um, so my book was due in September, the first manuscript, and I just started the church in July. So I didn't know you're so far out when you sign a book contract to when I actually like do it that I had no idea that I would be moving into a new yeah, appointment. Way to bite off more bu- than you can chew here. My This last year has been, someone asked me once, like, are you, how are you doing? And I said, I don't know. Um, I think I'm good, but it has just been an onslaught of crazy. So I wrote a book called What's Your Story? And it has a video that goes with it as well, um, which is just incredible because I had friends who um, have gone through incredible things and their stories are um, somewhat well-known, but maybe not uh, the fullness of it. So my friends who were pretty well-known uh, Christian celebrities, and then like it was discovered that maybe they don't believe the world was created in seven days and things like that, which was something that they had known for quite a while, but became public the same week, um, same month actually, uh, within a couple of weeks of the birth of their daughter who has Down syndrome. And so their rug was pulled out from underneath them, and it has turned into this beautiful story, but Why I wrote it was I got really passionate about helping people understand that stories involve ups and downs. So I had gone to a conference, actually, we were talking about it earlier, Donald Miller did the Storyline Conference for a little while that helped people look at their life like a story. And that really struck me as someone who loves good story, from movies to songs. Like, I listen to lyrics, like, listen to lyrics. And I will make people, like, listen to a song with me just because I want them to hear the story in it. Like, I like old school country because it has a story in it, you know, not just hmm. that my dog ran away and my car, truck, or whatever. And anyway, beer's good. Beer's good. <laughs> um, so I, I wrote this book because I look at scripture, and I think a lot of people think scripture is meant to be history, and I think it's actually meant to be a narrative or a story. And so uh, Donald Miller mentioned, like, just in passing, he was like, guys, like, the book of Joseph, or the story of Joseph in the Old Testament Um, is just this great story. And everyone else was like mapping out their own life and I couldn't stop mapping out Joseph's life. And seeing that, you know, when we sell scripture as history, I think we actually undersell it. And I think we miss out on a chance for people to see themselves within scripture. So I was a youth pastor for six and a half years, which affected me incredibly, which you did youth ministry, Yeah, which is how we we met. and I discovered that these kids were so brokenhearted, most of my kids, because I was in a very pretty affluent area, because the story they were told was a really bad story. So the story they're told, what's the story that your kids were told? 
Uh, you matter if you succeed. Mm-hmm. I've given you a lot, uh-huh. so use it. Um, you have to be the best. Yes. Be you know anything other than A's. You know, and you're a failure. Right. So you get the grade. Yeah. So you can get the job, and then you're gonna feel great. Mm-hmm. But then I was around tons of men and women who had got the grades and got the job and felt horrible. You know what? That uh, I. I, I in pastoral counseling, sorry, I'm just I'm recalling this uh, phenomenon. I love it was it. in pastoral counseling in seminary, and my professor was talking about something called conscription. And this is when you find, for instance, like uh, when you have people who are hurt by a system, and yet they bring other people into the system to be hurt in the same way they are. It's called conscription. So they're just like right. recruiting people. And so he was talking in this particular instance about like women who are second tier to men in certain systems, and yet they pull in and conscript young women to be just like them, even though they're suffering from the system that doesn't benefit them. I paid my dues. Yeah. You better pay your dues. Exactly. So it's funny how, you know, misery loves company in some ways. And there's all sorts of systems out there where people who are the victims or people who are, you know, not benefiting from the systems are pulling in other people to experience it just like them. And I feel like sometimes that's what happens to parents. I had to go through all of this. I don't, you know, I'm miserable in my job. I've gotten the salary. I've gotten, you know. But you should be I've, miserable in your job too. But this is this is the story. And so they just repeat the narrative to their kids and they suck their kids in that same pattern. You know, and that's the thing that I think I love to share is like a better story or a story that I see in scripture um, is a story of seeing those ups and downs as part of our story and that it's not necessarily about any moment of like climactic I. I reached this thing, you know, so movies always end with the thing and you're like, but what then happens after? Right. So he gets the girl, but then five years later, does he look at her and go, Oh, I want to see that movie where like there, it, they exists. have marital problems later days on. Of summer. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great movie. I guess that is the movie, huh? That's, that's the, the movie. One. And I hate and love it so mm-hmm. much. Um, I think there's that movie. There's just so many movies where they go back and you're like, oh, no. I was talking to someone recently about that movie. If you're not familiar with it, it says at the beginning of the movie, this, this is, is not a love story. story. It's a whole movie about a breakup. and the, It like, goes backwards. And it, yeah, and it flips around in different time periods yeah. of the and, – and so – but you want it to be a love story. Like you want it to work out and it's not – it's about it not working out. Because they're so cute together. But then does it work out? For each of them independently, separately. Differently. Yeah. There was a movie. Um, do you remember the movie The Breakup? No. There was a movie called The Breakup, and it is a, a movie where um, I'm not giving much away, and it happens to be a, a fairly old movie, so this is not. A, it's a spoiler alert. If this you is really, like Tom Hanks, like 90s. If you really want to see this movie, no, it's Vince Vaughn. And, oh. Yeah. Okay. And uh, Jennifer Aniston, and they've broken up, and the whole movie is them dealing with. She kind of made an ultimatum. Neither one of them actually wants to break up. But they break up. And that's the movie? Well, you uh, go through the whole thing, and at the end, you wonder, oh, they're gonna get they're gonna realize that they love each other. And they don't. Ha <laughs> ha. Take then, that Hollywood. And then a year later, the very end of the movie is a year later, they both are living the life that they could have been living without each other, and they run into each other on the street. And you wonder. Oh but you don't know because it looks like she walks away. Interesting. And it's like, ah. But the funny part of that movie for me is it has funny baggage in that I literally broke up with a boy I'd been dating for like many months in the parking lot of that movie because <laughs> we were like, yeah, we're them. It's probably not healthy. Yeah. So I well, think, I'm glad that 
the Hollywood narratives can help you with your relationships. Like, or in them. <laughs> Some, or in. But, but I think it's you, helpful, though, because when we look at good stories, when we look at good movies, when we look at movies that we're still talking about, they all have negative turns and positive turns. None of them are just winning stories. Like, name one movie that's actually good where it's just like, and then they won, and that's it. And when I was a kid, I just remember seeing these movies and I always could prepare for like, oh, like here's the families, they're getting along, everything's great. And I'm like, oh no, oh no, here it comes. Something, it's like somebody would send a stupid email or say something they shouldn't have or mm -hmm. forget their kid at home, like Home Alone. And I was always the kid that hated that. I was like, I just want the movie to keep being nice. <laughs> Why does the drama have to happen? There's so much anxiety. Right? It is because, like, there, at that point in my life, there was a lot of drama. And for me, I just wanted the fantasy of normal. Right. So it's just funny as a kid realizing that. I remember, like, why does it always have to get bad? And it's, it's true. because every, every narrative has to have the challenges. Otherwise, we, we don't care. And we don't get better. So, like, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, they talked a lot about the need for people to go through. You know, Tolkien writes these books, right, where the character is living in this ex like ordinary world and they think it's enough. <gasps> and then someone comes in and challenges that or something happens and they have a choice and they can either cross the threshold. And this is all work by Joseph Campbell. I don't know if you've ever read him, but The Hero Has a Thousand Faces is also in my book. talks about um, just his wonderful work around story narrative. But And anyone who writes a script, now that you know the secret of this, anyone who writes a script, anyone who... They use this, and now they might use it differently. There are people who, like, um, Tarantino does it in five, not three acts, like, different things like that, and people, and some movies make us really uncomfortable when they go off of this, but usually there's this moment in decision where people get to cross the threshold. Do I step into this thing, or do I retreat? And scripture is like that. The story of God is like that. Do I cross into belief? Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of the book is about helping us understand our own stories, understanding what I call sacred woundings. That's a, um, a, a big, important part of like, what's the thing in me that hurts so much that I need to sort of work through that and help other people work through it? Because I think we have like these sacred woundings. Um, the Wounded Healer by Henri Nouwen is one of my favorite. It's just to talk about that. Like, what do we do? How are we living out of these wounds in good and in bad ways? And so that's what it is. And the end of the book, people... That, go ahead. That just crosses generations, too. Yes. Right? It doesn't matter if you're 90 or 20. You're trying to use your life. Right. And that is something. why I think the most important part of what I am trying to do with my community and something that I was even reminded of while being here and sharing our story is that why we've been able to have people connect is that they've begun to share each other's stories with each other. And that was something we had to do intentionally. So we did a series on storytelling. We did a series on uh, Joseph. We did, we've done a series on the six generations under one roof. That was when every week we talked about a different generation and we played the music from that generation. And then we had people turn around and ask each other questions. Um, because I think the only way we get to know each other is through story. And I think the only way things get better in relationship is through story. Um, I cannot handle all of these different churches or communities or environments where all these people are siloed by age. A great movie, if you haven't seen it, is The Intern. Have you seen it? No, with Robert De Niro? Yes. It's good. So it, it's the story of Google, Amazon, any of these companies where a lot of them are in their 20s. And it's this startup 
company that's done really, really well, and they inter- they like advertise that they want senior um, interns. And they mean senior citizen. The guy meant senior citizens, but everyone at the company thinks they mean seniors in high school. So they get an intern that is a senior citizen that is a guy that used to own his own company, but his wife has passed away. He's quite successful. He doesn't need this job, but he's doing it because he wants to learn. He wants to matter. But it turns out these young men learn from him about how to kind of do life. And the woman who owns the company is going through so much stuff. And what she realizes is she doesn't have anyone in her life that is his age that can talk into her life in a way that no one else can. And like, even when I think about it, I don't want to cry because I can relate so much to her story mm-hmm. of being that like hard charger, got to make everything work. And he's the one who gives her permission to like be a human. And it is this beautiful, beautiful movie. So if you haven't seen it, see The Intern. Because Thank it you. talks about these ideas of how are we to be community with different ages and how is siloing people the worst thing that I think is in some ways has happened in our in our culture. Absolutely. I see this all the time. I talk to people who are boomers especially, who just are insulted by millennials, who feel threatened by them, who have negative outlooks on them. I was talking to the woman this week and she just told story after story about how this next generation doesn't know how to look people in the eyes and how she got taught by her mother and she just wants to grab by the chin and force him to look her in the eyes. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, this woman's terrifying. Yeah. And, but just this, like, just, just stare just this into her soul? attitude. No, I didn't meet her, her gaze. It was too intense. <laughs> yeah. no, but, but like, the, there's so many attitudes of, you know, it's on the millennials to come to our stuff. And I just wish so much that if there's one lesson I could give to older generations, it's you have no idea how much younger generations would be so grateful for your love and affection and support and yeah just just mentorship and I just don't feel like it's offered I feel like there's there's a lot of people who want to teach and a lot of people who want to give advice and not a lot of people who want to walk by your side so advice means that I got I figured it out yeah let me tell you how to do it so that's the reiteration of the story Mm -hmm. I'm going to mentor you to be like me and I've had this really interesting experience in my own career where who I was was not okay. Um, as a creative, I'm sure you've had the same experience. We're pretty similar. Um, as a creative, as someone who's a little bit of an idealist, who loves people, who, and I've been told my whole life these are not marketable skills to be relatable, to have high woo, to have people, like it's almost been a shaming thing. Like, um, and I, I've had pastors who are like, you gotta be like a CEO, Sarah. You gotta learn how to do all these things. And, and what I've discovered in this last couple of years in my career is those people that I looked up to and thought, I so much shame in my life of like, I wish I was like them. They have really low emotional intelligence. And when stuff happens in people's lives, I'm the person they call. And I would much rather be like fully myself and, and, take what they mentored me into and allow myself to say they might have offered some suggestion but they didn't know everything and that's okay and that's beautiful and the fear for people I think there's this um, movement I don't know if you've heard much about it but the death of the expert Ooh, there aren't experts anymore that's not dramatic well (laughs) but it's true yeah Uh, I went to a a talk at DreamWorks and the guy who is uh, who was talking was talking about how um, they're trying to figure out how to do uh, 
media and marketing and all that kind of stuff from the perspective of no longer do we sit, even lectures in universities don't work anymore. Because the person standing in front of you, you can Google their information and learn it pretty quick. Goodwill Hunting was like a great example of a guy who spent money on a library card and learned all this stuff. Well, now we're carrying that library card in our pocket. We're carrying all those books. We can learn these things. Now, we don't learn them well, right? Because we're just skimming over it. But we can learn enough. Too much, maybe, because we think we know. And so if I cannot... If no longer people are looking for an expert. So people used to go to church because it was the only place they could learn about the Bible. Right. Now if you want to hear a great sermon, pull up a podcast. You want to hear a sermon better than mine about any topic, it's available. So people aren't coming to church for that. What are they coming to church for? And my argument or how I feel like my career in life is kind of unfolding is I think because people want to share in a story together. And they're not getting to do that in intergenerational settings anywhere else. Like, nowhere. What advice do you have for people who want to help their churches and their communities tell a better story? Because I think we both agree, and I think that is one key way. Like, you can, you can follow a lot of pragmatists, like, here's seven steps to reaching millennials, do this program. We offer some of the stuff like this on the podcast. But there's also this kind of just, you can... Like a thing you can do tomorrow? Yeah, but there's but but there's, an, there's this other approach of like who you are inherently will attract or push away people too. Where, where even right. if you have good systems, if you're if you don't offer anything compelling as a community, you know, then it doesn't matter how great your systems are, how much stuff you have figured out. Who is in front of you on Sunday mornings? I am a millennial. On Sunday mornings, I, I'm on I'm the bracket year. I'm the like, maybe, maybe not. But if you look at most of the identifying key identifying things, I, I'm willing to admit I'm a millennial. Um, on any Sunday, we try to have a millennial. A, um, you know, we look at even the demographics of people of color, all these different questions, right? And usually my liturgist is one of the older folks because they enjoy doing that. And that's something that, so having those demographics just visually present is really helpful. If that's not part of your program already, invite, intentionally invite people into leadership that are in those different demographics and groups. And, and always do a storytelling activity. Um, I have this great example. Clearly, I like stories. We're doing our first leadership board meeting um, where our old and new kind of we're combining together, and this is the first time uh, or the second time, we were all kind of together. And um, I have this wonderful lay leader. Her name is Jenna. She's young. She's like 33. She's incredible. And she got everyone to tell if they were going to go and be stranded on a desert island and they had a bag of groceries, what would be in it. Now, this is like folks who've been going to church now for a year together. And there is uh, everyone's got all these different answers. You know, these women who are football players who are hysterical, they're like, all I would need would be like a pizza and a, like a two-liter thing of Coke or whatever. It was hysterical. <laughs> and the rest of us were like, that's all you want to eat for the rest of your life? And they are like, correct. Um, so it went around the table. And, of course, me, I'm like, I would want, you know, Brussels sprouts and, like, all this <laughs> sort of stuff. And then it got to uh, Alex, this girl on our team. And Alex says, just a bottle of Patron and, like, all these taco ingredients. Sitting beside her is Bruce. Bruce has been going to this church since he was a child. He went away for a little while because he was uh, – well, Bruce was in the FBI and, like, was in the Navy and, like, just this incredible guy. And he was like, well, what would I put in my bag? 
well, survival training would say. And he like <gasps> listed these things. And so Alex, who was sitting beside him, she goes, I've changed my thing. I want a bottle of Patron and Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> In my bag. In my bag. And then Bruce and her sat around the table laughing, just the two of them, for like 30 minutes. And now the two of them are going to training together to do some security stuff for the church. And they literally, I see them giggling in the back of the church all the time. And it just took little moments of storytelling together. I have a pastor friend who um, has been divorced and then remarried. And his, his wife was telling me how he's never shared that with his congregation because he doesn't want to be seen as somebody with a past. And there's this generational pressure to sometimes like that your story, that you need to be perfect or you need to put forward this like, you know, that you need to be the professional, the expert. And so I just, I think what you're sharing here is there's there's a sense of vulnerability in sharing your story, but that it will be received by a lot of people too. And it even gets received by the generation that thinks they're not supposed to. This is another magic bullet. It's like, it takes weight off your shoulders, right? So I, I'm British and Canadian, like telling our story is like a no do. Do not do that. You like make fun of people, you make fun of yourself, you're self-deprecating, that's our therapy. We don't like talk about our issues or like feelings and you don't have bad feelings, you just don't, that's not part of our culture. So I went through a season of my life that was incredibly difficult and my first reaction was shame to blame for feeling so devastated. And it really pushed me away from community and friends because I, I couldn't tell them a good story, a fun story, a happy story. So I didn't want to tell them any story, right? And then I came to radical deconstruction of like, no, I'm going to be a pastor, but I'm going to be Sarah Heath as a pastor. And it's going to be kind of an open door, except there are things I don't think you want to like treat your parishioners as if they're your therapist. So they don't need to know everything. But for them to know my imperfections has actually drawn more people toward me and the very people who in my life, including like relatives, friends, have said, because you have told me, I can now tell you mine. And it is- It's like a let me go first. Let me go first, then, yeah. Let me go first, and then we'll see. I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave then space. You can either hop in or not, yeah. and no one can argue with your story. And I think it's beautiful that Jesus always used stories, because I think Instead of saying, this is what you're doing wrong, he said he would tell a story and see, who do you think was right in that story? Oh, is that the way that you would have reacted? Things like that. I mean, story gives us so much power of looking through. And I think people have gotten the Bible wrong even when they treat it like history because history is easily, easy to argue with. You know, in fact, what's interesting too is you and I can have the same experience and we can tell it historically, but that doesn't get to the same story and our experience and what was happening. Isn't narrative therapy a thing where... Logos therapy, yeah. yeah. And it helps people kind of retell their story. Mm-hmm. So literally the past hasn't changed. It has but not your changed. your perspective can change. I think this is really important for churches too because I just encounter a lot of churches that are so demoralized. Correct. They're nervous of the non-denominational church down the street. They feel like you know, maybe they could be something better if it wasn't for the people that are already there. So you've got this kind of like tension, you've got disappointment, you've got anxiety, you've got, um, which sign me up. I want to join that. Right. Right. It's not, it's not <laughs> like it, 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 when a person has those things, it's not very, you know, it's not going to magnetize people either. And so you have to, in some ways, you know, you're creating your own obstacles by just feeling, just telling a negative story. 
And so one of the things that we were talking about earlier was, you know, that these, that you said something uh, at your at your keynote yesterday. You said a phrase, you be you, boo. <laughs> one of my best friends, Halima, used to say that to me all the time. You be you, boo. And you, you basically give that advice to churches too, right? Exactly, because I think I there are enough churches doing whatever thing you think you need to be doing really well. So the example I have is my church is literally right next door to Saddleback. They bought the building next to us. They bought it? Yeah. One of the, or they rent it. One of the reasons that people voted to close our church was that it was right next door to the Saddleback church. And I said... Saddleback is Rick Warren's Rick church. Rick Warren's church. It's like... Big, big you know, multi-site. Big multi-site. And it's incredible. And the work they do is incredible. And what they've done for AIDS is incredible. They have done incredible work, um, especially in Africa. They've done incredible work, even with mental health, to get that into the evangelical world. What they do is great for what they do. People said to me, aren't you afraid? No. Because the person that Saddleback is going to work for... First United Methodist Church of Costa Mesa is not going to work for. And most of my folks would not be able to go to Saddleback and encounter Christ in the way that they need to encounter Christ. And I think that's why it's so key and important to figure out your own story as a church. Figure out, do the hard work of like, what's our legacy? Who are we? Who have we been? And then where are we going? Because we get so uh, stuck in the chapter. You know, talk about the demoralization. There's nothing worse. And this has happened to me. I can't tell you how many times. I've visited a Methodist church, and they've given me, given me their old statistics. Just so I know that, hey, this isn't how it's always been. They give you, like, 10, oh, well, 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah, we used to be, like, the biggest church in, in this area. And you're oh, like, wow. And you're like, oh, okay. Sorry? And I'm visiting. <laughs> like, yeah. why does anyone want to jump oh. on that ship? Right? It, it reminds me of like, yeah. I well, don't know. it's kind of happening in America right now. Yeah, who we used to be. This town. Oh. This town used to be so. When we made all the cars here, this was the town. We just need to go back to when we made all the cars. Yeah. And it's like, no, robots have stolen your job. Not humans, robots. What's the next thing? And the um, towns and the churches that are doing well are doing their next thing. So we have churches that do whatever it is they do. You do you, boo. Figure it out and do it really well, whatever that might be. And I think our church is in a season of figuring that out. We're in that year of, like, what is First United Methodist Church going to be known for? Mm. Right now it's radical inclusiveness, whether it be generational, um, sexuality, where people are coming from, you know, it's one of the critiques I love I get is like, yeah, but most of your people are not from the United Methodist Church. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> you know, like, I think there was a guy named John Wesley or something that, like, said the world was his pulpit, right? Like, we have to have, or the world was his parish. We have to have that kind of, in, like, just passion for people who, you and I talked about a word I love is spiritual nomad. Because people say nuns and duns. Nuns and duns sounds to me like... Which is a definition for people who are done with right. the church or never never interested. never interested at all. But isn't that so final? Yeah. Versus saying a spiritual nomad is someone who may end up somewhere, or they may not, but at least they're on that journey. And so um, I, that's who I feel like I most resonate with, and it's not an age thing. We're finding some of our millennials are our most spiritually mature, and some of our older folks are the 
I come here because it's a habit. We had one guy say that. I come to this church because it's a habit. Mm. This is where I come on Sundays. I don't know, like, I guess that's how you keep worshiping when your window is broken and you're in the dark. And so, yeah, I think there's real transformational power in just knowing your story as a church. And I think that's a great piece of advice. If there's one thing you take away from, you know, the last 40 minutes, it's that um, you you be you, boo, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, this idea figure of, it like, out. Yeah, your church has a story to tell. Even You don't have to compare yourself to uh, the church down the street, the mega church, the whatever. Like, you have something to offer, and God's specifically using your community in a way, and your story's not done. No, so, it's not done. If you want to re- get more than that, buy the book. Yeah. What's your story? You Question mark, a, colon, yeah. seeing your life through God's eyes. That's and true. this is with Reverend Sarah Heath. Sarah, thank you so much oh, you're so welcome. for being on our podcast today. Absolutely. And good luck on all of your endeavors. Thank you. Uh, if you want to find out more about how your church can help reach next generations, we'd love for you to visit our site. We've got blog resources, and you can find out more at thinkburlap.com. All right. Thanks for listening. Take care.